Why are police photographing our license plate? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk news radio program. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, And we have a very special guest today. I'm very happy to say our guest today is Director Cheryl Haynes, who is the founding executive director and chief curator for the Foresight Foundation. That's F-O-R-S-I-T-E Foundation. As the curator of At Large, Director Haynes was the driving force securing the location for the landmark exhibition, Ai Weiwei on Alcatraz. Ai Weiwei, Yours Truly, is a feature-length documentary film directed by our guest, Cheryl Haynes. So welcome, Cheryl Haynes, to our show today. How are you? Very well. Thank you so much, Marcello. It's uh, it's exciting to, to be with you this morning. And I hope I didn't butcher the artist's name. No, you're you're fine. <laughs> okay. In any case, we are uh, we're going to we're going to primarily focus on the your feature length documentary film Ai Weiwei, yours truly. But you've done so much. I'm I'm curious about. Well, first of all, let me tell people your film is going to have its world premiere, a special marquee presentation screening during the San Francisco International Film Festival 2019 on Sunday, April 14th at 7.30 p.m. at the Castro Theater. That's at 429 Castro Street in San Francisco. And, joy of joys, with Ai Weiwei, the artist in attendance. How do you feel about that? Oh, we are thrilled. I mean, we are so grateful to the San Francisco Film Festival, to Noah Cowan and all of his capable team for not only selecting this film, uh, but Featuring it is one of the marquee presentations. And I think one of the reasons why it's so important to us is that the original exhibition happened here. And so many people from our community were able to see it. But honestly, so many were not also Mm. because of the fact that this exhibition was located on the island of Alcatraz. And there's a uh, ticketed ferry circumstance 
it was very limited availability, and I know a number of people were quite disappointed. Even though the exhibition was there for eight months, um, they weren't able to see it. So how fantastic to be able to share um, some of the, at least some components of the exhibition and the ongoing story of yours truly. Mm. Well, you know, for decades, it seems, you've developed exhibitions and site-specific public programs. I love that. Very clearly stated, or or art about place, uh, or with your thinking or your, your vision of art about place. When did all this become a passion for you, and, and why? How did you come up with that, site-specific and art about place? Well, you know, there's, there's actually not a, a single answer to that. Um, you know, it just it depends... <laughs> How deeply we want to go, but I mean, truth be known, uh, you know, I've I've been a gallerist. I founded the Haynes Gallery here in San Francisco in 1987, and so we're in our what our 32nd year. It's hard to imagine, really. But about midway through that tenure, uh, though, I'm you know deeply honored and, and grateful to the many great artists that I represent at the gallery and. I think that, you know, there is a very rigorous and interesting program there. About 15 years ago, I decided that I really needed to do more. I I wanted to put more back into the community. And, you know, not every segment of the culture visits a gallery or Mm. a contemporary art museum. And a lot of the, the ideas that the artists are bringing forth about, you know, this moment in time, really not getting out to the people that need to hear them. Yes. So I decided that what better way to engage uh, sort of a broader audience than to start working in, out in the cultural landscape. Mm-hmm. And thus uh, directing film? Well, no, that's um, curating exhibitions. Thus far, we've been curating site-specific exhibitions here in the Bay Area since 2010, mm-hmm. and most of the projects have occurred in the national park system here in the Bay Area. You know, we're very, very fortunate to have protected lands right here mm-hmm. in this urban environment, and uh, the Presidio in particular, which was uh, initially a Spanish fort, mm-hmm. and then it became an American military base, and now it's one of the most visited national parks in the country. And they've done such a remarkable job, uh, not just the national parks, but the Golden Gate National Parks Conservancy and the Presidio Trust, of really preserving the resources and encouraging the public to know more about the history of both our natural and cultural resources here in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have gravitated to this area um, for these exhibitions uh, in part because they're so rich and there's so much material for the artist to mine, but also because of visitorship. Mm. You know, it's, it's not just local people. It's tourists. It's people from all over the world. You can hear really at any moment many different languages being spoken. Mm. Uh, so it's been a, a wonderful gift to be able to, to work in that environment. Mm. It, it, you know, it sounds, and of course it seems like an obvious question, but I'm going to ask it anyway so that you can answer it for all of us. Why was Alcatraz the perfect choice for your Ai Weiwei? Well, it, 
Alcatraz Island uh, is a very interesting location because obviously now it's it's a very popular tourist destination. But prior to that time, it was a federal penitentiary, mm. a place of detainment, but also a place of protest. Mm-hmm. In the 1960s, when the Native American occupation occurred, uh, and they were requesting to receive the island back from the U.S. government. And some of the very earliest prisoners on the island were, in fact, prisoners of conscience, uh, Hopi leaders that mm-hmm. refused to send their children to government schools and be educated by Western standards. So all of those things really made sense uh, in terms of you know, telling the story about you know, prisoners of conscience People who speak up for their beliefs mm. uh, are often incarcerated because of it. The courage that that takes and the sense of isolation uh, that's a result of that detainment. And it truly did not come up uh, for me until I was seated across the table from Ai Weiwei in his studio in Beijing. You know, we had been working together for a number of years. We'd become friends. And when he was detained by the Chinese government, for speaking up for his beliefs mm-hmm. uh, in 2011, I could tell it had been a very difficult circumstance for him. So I flew to Beijing to meet with him to see if there wasn't something I could do as his friend and collaborator mm-hmm. to help him. And at that time, he said, yes, you can bring my art to a broader audience. And it, really, at that moment, you know, 6,000 miles away, I thought, oh, well, what? I have this prison in mind. <laughs> Would that work? <laughs> How did he respond to that? I think it was very, you know, he's always very quite spare with his language, but, um, you know, he said, you can do that. Mm-hmm. And, I, of course, I immediately said, uh, I'm not really sure. They've never done an exhibition of this kind before, and it's going to be a huge undertaking on an island with no internet or power or water or, uh, I'll get back to you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because as most of us know, and you've pointed out Alcatraz, even after its, its tenure as a federal prison, uh, sat pretty much neglected uh, for years and years. And I have friends who are very much into historical restorations and alternative uses of, of historical places that have gone into disrepair, but this really is at the top of the list to even think of it. I mean, I know you're in, you, you are in the area, so you know the area, as you've already pointed out, but to put that together did, uh, again, if, if it's a naive question, did the fact that he had been imprisoned uh, uh, trigger any of that, or was it just that location just seemed perfect for you? No, it was, it was really, it was the perfect marriage between... You know, I mean, his life as an activist um, and conceptual artist who had, you know, he'd just been released from prison, um, you know, be taken for his beliefs. I mean, it, it absolutely mm-hmm. seemed utterly aligned. Yes. And it's the kind of idea that one doesn't have very often, I have to say. I, I was just in Berlin a couple of weeks ago with Weiwei, which that's where he makes his home uh, at present. And we were talking about, um, you know, all the many projects he's done around the world. And as a matter of fact, I'm meeting him in Mexico City next week for a mm. new project. It's opening prior to him coming to San Francisco for the for the film premiere. 
And we both looked at each other and said, you know, it's kind of once in a lifetime that we have a project like this. Yes. And how, how marvelous, how remarkable that, you know, we've been able to illuminate such, you know, important human rights issues through an art exhibition. And that there would be almost a million people went to the island during the run of the exhibition. That's a huge yes. number yes. to see any art exhibition. Um, then we also published two books uh, on the project. And now a documentary film that, with any luck at all, will have even a broader audience. So it's just it's just an honor. What, what a great gift to well, have been able to manage this. Well, it's a gift to all of us, but I think also you uh, very much um, responded to his request. Everything that you've listed, everything you've done since he asked, can you... You, can you know uh, my work? Can you send it out to a larger number of people in the world so that they get it? Not, I, I don't get the impression that his was an ego about I want people to see my work, but he wants to see the message of his work, the soul of his work, why indeed he does the kind of work that he does, and now you've captured it on film. What do you think? Well, absolutely. No, I think you're, you're totally right. I, it, it's not about personal ego with him at all. You know, I, it's it's interesting. I was listening to him speak at a museum in, in Tokyo a number of years ago, and it was before it really got difficult for him in Beijing and before his detainment. But he was having some police harassment because he, he's always been outspoken, yes. of course. Yes. And some the interview, I asked him, he said, well, wait, wait, why don't you leave? Why do you stay? You know, you put yourself at risk. You put your family at risk, your practice. And he simply answered by saying, we all have to use whatever skills, abilities, gifts, and influence we have to help others. Otherwise, we should be ashamed. Mm. Wow. And, and that is one of my favorite stories of him because it just speaks to who he is. And, who, and, and the challenge from him that we all realize that, that that is our responsibility, too. That is the gauntlet at our feet to realize we we owe, every individual owes the the, the whole this kind of uh, dedication, commitment to, to help, to enrich. Well, uh, I just, I'm just so painfully aware that we are not meeting that goal so often in our politics, but I do love that the arts in all their forms seem to rush to fill that void. Uh, what do you, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I agree, and it's it's one of the reasons why, you know, I do have a sense of satisfaction in the work that I'm doing. Um, you know, I remember uh, the, 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 the recent election, mm. uh, for example, um, and how concerned most of my colleagues and friends were, and, and many people were quite uh, debilitated by the results mm. and not able to really think their way past it and at that moment i had an exhibition up in a series of world war ii bunkers mm. called homeland security that was all about you know what is home what is safety what is security fear of other you know cultural misunderstanding and thousands of people were coming to see it yes. to speak solace and there was a difficult moment uh, in many ways i just I just felt such a sense of relief that at least I'm able to work with creatives. I'm able yes. to work with artists that can illuminate difficult issues 
you know, not in a way that is um, sort of demanding or, or it's really more about asking the difficult questions. And, you know, artists have always been on the vanguard of social change. Yes, yes. And, and you continue to uh, advance the conversation. Uh, that's what I love so much about your work, as well as uh, the creatives with whom you work, that you, you advance the conversation because you, um, what do I want to say, you increase, as well as expose the art to new audiences, you increase the audience. I mean, the numbers of people visiting your creations your, uh, are astounding. Uh, I think, uh, was, as you said, like 900,000 visitors have been involved in, in uh, the human rights and personal freedom artwork of uh, Weiwei. And, and I want to talk about that and how the visitors have been challenged to, to, to pick up the mantle, if you, if you will. But we're going to take a short break right now. We are talking to Cheryl Haynes, who is the director of a feature full-length documentary on the artist Ai Weiwei on Alcatraz. I weigh, weigh yours truly. Stay with us. We'll be right back with director and curator Cheryl Haynes. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Movie geeks, take note. Quartet is Dustin Hoffman's first directing credit. Let us see what this old pro might have up his artistic sleeve. Ah, no tricks, deep meaning, or acting bravado. Just a delightful stroll through an old age home filled with funny and lovable retired performers. Sure, there are threads of a plot. One couple were married once, but she cheated soon after the wedding, and he has never forgiven her. She was a big star and is still a diva, and arrives to shake up the place with her airs and demands. Another thread is the unlikely need to put on a show, ostensibly to save their beloved retirement home with the proceeds. But for the show to work, the old lovers must reunite, and our diva must be able to hit a note she is no longer confident can be reached. Not exactly heavy material, but we celebrate Quartet for what may be the best reason of all. It's simply enjoyable entertainment. Here we have another entry into the silver dollar trend, films on senior subjects populated by the most appealing of elder stars. The humanity is real, the laughs strike true, and we learn that Dustin Hoffman respects us by not taking himself too seriously. What's not to like? Quartet. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Find us on the web at IndieFilmMinute.com. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices Radio Talk News Program. My Reasonable Voice guest today is director and curator Cheryl Haynes. Joining us, she has directed a full-length documentary film, and it is entitled I Weiwei Yours Truly, and it is having its world premiere, a special marquee presentation, by the way, screening during the San Francisco International Film Festival 2019 on Sunday, April 14th, 7.30 p.m. at the Castro Theater, 429 Castro Street in San Francisco, with Ai Weiwei in attendance. So, Cheryl, um, we've been talking a great deal, and there's just so much more I, I want to hear about one thing before we shift to perhaps talking more about you and making the film as director, but um, you there is a challenge. There is uh, interactivity 
with the people visiting the exhibit and seeing the film. The, the conversation is extended about human rights and personal freedom by asking what of the public specifically. Tell us about that. Well, it was very important for Weiwei from the very beginning when we were uh, curating this exhibition together that it not be just a passive art exhibition where people were passing by artworks and viewing them and carrying on, in part because Alcatraz actually already has in place a very rigorous audio program and it's world-renowned, mm -hmm. award-winning. So to get people to stop, take their earphones off, engage with artwork is a challenge. Yes. And he was aware of that. So we, we were both thinking about, well, how do we make it more personal to people? And, and you know, obviously one of the works in the project called Trace was, um, com was comprised of portraits of 176 prisoners of conscience made out of Legos. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine, you know, Lego is a much beloved material for all age groups. Yes. And that was one of the first pieces that people encountered uh, on their on their journey through the island. So it caught them. It caught their attention. Who are these people? What are they do what are their portraits doing here? Um, so we provided them with not only uh, booklets indicating who these people were, what countries they were from, what courageous acts they were involved with that, be, that made them prisoners of conscience, where they were incarcerated. So we drew them into their stories, which mm. was very exciting. So further on, as, as they traveled from one building to the next, um, they eventually came to what used to be the dining hall for the prisoners. Mm -hmm. And contained within the dining hall was an installation that had postcards mm -hmm. that carried the national bird and flower of the countries where these people were in prison. So we asked people, is there anyone here in this exhibition that their story resonates to you? Is there anyone here you'd like to reach out to and just say, thank you for your courage, thank you for your bravery, we're thinking about you, you've not been forgotten. Yes. And also these, these postcards were seen by many of the uh, families of former prisoners of conscience, yes, around the world. Well, yes. I mean, it's, it's, well, it's, it, you know, it's very difficult to know how many actually got through. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're sending to places like Belarus yes. and Cuba and China and Tibet and you know, Russia, it's, it's so hard to know. But one of the reasons why we chose the national bird or flower was that we, it was our hope that along the path of these cards, whether it was the postal workers, the prison guards, and hopefully ultimately the prisoners themselves or their mm -hmm. families, that there would be a recognition that this national bird or flower, though in some ways is a symbol of pride, in this case, could also be viewed as a symbol of shame. Mm. Um, so, you know, there again, we don't know how many actually ultimately got through. We were very, very careful. We worked with Amnesty International to vet the prisoners of conscience to make sure that in so much as we were able that this communication would not put them at risk. Um, mm -hmm. But it's hard, you know, really, there again, hard to know. Sure, exactly. You know, I think you and your work are also human rights activists. We know that Ai Weiwei has been 
outspoken, as you've mentioned, an outspoken artist, a human rights activist. Uh, and as you also said, reminding our audience, he was detained by Chinese authorities for quite some time. I'd like to move now to talk about your transition, uh, if you see it as that, from curator to documentary director. I mean, of feature length, anything on film is a challenge, but documentaries, documentation of a life, a living life that has such notoriety for a lot of reasons. How was it in just primarily, I think you, you implied his request is what launched your desire to do this, but it seems to have gone much further, at least much further than I think maybe he thought at the time that he made the request. Am I reading too much into that? Maybe that's just my, my thought. No, I think you're spot on. Uh, I think the exhibition um, satisfied his request uh, and then some. I think we were both shocked at not only the, the numbers of uh, you know, visitors, but also the international press attention, um, you know, the fact that you know, quite a number of the POCs were actually released during the run of the exhibition. And we have no idea. We probably had nothing to do with that. But it, it, it still made us feel as though there perhaps was some ripple effect, some impact out mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, the, the, the film is another matter. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because it, it's not, in some ways, it's not so dissimilar to creating an exhibition. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. connecting the conceptual dots. Yes. You know, it's about sort of the conceptual underpinning. It's you know, building a story, telling it, sharing it. Um, you know, it's, but it's also not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's been very challenging, honestly. <laughs> uh, I, I have a great team. I have a wonderful editor and wonderful, you know, creative directors and advisors. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it does fall on my desk. But I would say I would never would have had the courage to do this if I didn't realize about halfway through the development of At Large, mm -hmm. you know, Weiwei and I were talking, and I said, well, Weiwei, why, why are these postcards so important? I mean, I understand when you were incarcerated that, you know, your sense of isolation was really overwhelming, and, you know, by reaching out to these people, we're, we're, we're trying to break through that sense of isolation a little bit. So, but where, where did this idea come from? And then he shared this story with me that, he had grown up in exile um, in northwest China in an area near Shitsa, um because his father, I Ching, was a very well-regarded poet, mm -hmm. but he published a poem that the Chinese government uh, objected to. Mm -hmm. So they were all packed off. I mean, Weiwei was, I think, one year, one years old, maybe? Mm -hmm. And they were all packed off to this place of labor, a uh, very, very rough and difficult place. Um, and over the years, they settled in and became accustomed to it as much as one might be able to. Mm -hmm. But you can imagine your father is, is you know, an internationally renowned poet and scholar uh, is relegated to doing public service and, and you know, cleaning latrines, yes. basically. It was a nightmare. And, and then one day... A postcard arrived with a message for his father saying, you know, it was on the anniversary of the publishing of one of his famous poems. And he said, you know, don't, you've not been forgotten. Oh, wow. You are still in our hearts. You've not been forgotten. And the impact that that had 
on Weiwei's father and on the family was enormous. Yes. He kept it with him. And now that's that's sort of, I guess, the response that your work and his work is still getting, especially with the use of the postcards, that it's the message. People are not forgotten. We, we say prisoners of conscience, which is which is exactly true, but break that down for us. People who are, well, I'm asking you to do it. I, I'm not, I don't want to do it. I want to know how you feel about it. But it's people who stand up for what they believe in and, and very often with tragic consequences, yes? Well, that's absolutely right. And, and you know, Amnesty International has sort of an official definition of prisoner of conscience. Mm. But I think the overriding principle is that people that speak out for their beliefs, um, but there's no violence involved in their action. Mm. That's important. Um, so it could be anywhere from organizing a rally to trying to connect with others on social media to create a dialogue around, you know, societal change. It could be many, many things. And as we were doing research on these individuals for the project, it was utterly shocking in, in, in some cases how little one would do mm. to fall in that category and mm. find themselves in, in prison suddenly. What's your ultimate goal for your documentary film? Well, you know, like uh, like all filmmakers, I suppose. But I I would really like to, this to have as broad an audience as possible, just following that thread. And I think it'd be great to, to be able to find the educational distribution mm -hmm. because I think the messages contained within this film that are really critical for the next generation to hear. And I think they're delivered in a way that there's a soft enough landing that there again they can question themselves you know there's no you know victim there it's mm -hmm. really these are the ideas that are important these are the small things one can do yes. to activate you know one's sense of responsibility this moment in time and uh yeah children yeah young people need to see this film absolutely i agree Tell us something, if you will, both about Foresight Foundation, but also maybe about some of your uh, film crew, the, your team there, who uh, were instrumental in helping you get this documentary where it's going. Oh, goodness. Let's see. Where to begin? Well, the Foresight Foundation is, is a very small not-for-profit, you know, based here in San Francisco, and we also have an artist-in-residency program up in the foothills, and an old gold rush town mm. called Nevada City. Um, and, you know, we're very small, but we're, we're, we're kind of, you know, sort of scrappy. And mm -hmm. uh, we've been described as batting above our weight. <laughs> so, uh, love it. I mean, I really, I literally have like two full-time staff members and then independent, um, you know, talent that we bring in depending upon the project. So it's, um, you know, we're very small and lean. But I'd like to think our projects are quite impactful. Mm -hmm. You know, my team, uh, Gina Lightbrick, is very, very experienced uh, editor. She's been at this for over 30 years. My creative directors, David Spaulding and Sharon Wood, between them bring a vast experience in contemporary art and curating and critical thinking and storytelling. You know, it's a small team here, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
but doing big things. I mean, really, I'm not just saying that. You, you Surely you know that. I know from what we've been talking about. But the ripple effect of, uh, of your work and Weiwei's work, it's, um, I, think it's, it's, uh, I think it's framing, as you say, in a gentle way, artistic way, but, but, but with clarity. It's framing um, a new conversation for global human dignity. Is that too much? Oh, well, it sounds very grand to me, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I believe that, you know. I mean, because I think we, we demean people when we forget to define them as the value that they bring to, uh, to life on Earth, to life in their neighborhood, to life down the street and in schools and at the workplace, in the fields. I just think we forget, we look at a person and we forget it's more than the flesh and bone we see before us. How's that? Well, I think that's right. And I think it can be distilled in, in a couple of very simple thoughts. And one of them is from Weiwei. And it basically, we open the film this way. It says, you know, one small act, one small act every day. Mm. It, 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 it can change the world. Yes, yes. Well... Any final words for us? Any any uh, appeal? Maybe we should uh, be requesting distribution uh, d- uh, distributors to uh, to be in contact. Tell us websites. How how can we reach you? Yes, you know we we've been so engrossed in finishing this film that we don't have a sales agent, and we haven't even thought about distribution. <laughs> and we're racing. I mean, we're literally getting the final film to SF Film on the 9th of April for a 14th April 14th showing. It's very tight. Uh, but yes, we would be delighted to uh, be put in touch with any um, you know distributors that. Um, are of a similar mind. Yes. So you can reach us. Um, we have a, a website for the film. It's www.yourstrulydoc.com. And our social media handles are at yourstrulydoc on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Excellent. And let me just repeat again, if I could. The world premiere is with special marquee presentation screening during the San Francisco International Film Festival 2019 on Sunday, April 14th at 7.30 p.m. at the Castro Theater, located on 429 Castro Street in San Francisco. We have been having a marvelous conversation with curator and director Cheryl Haynes, who is the director of the film I Weiwei, Yours Truly. And that website, again, foresightfoundation.org. That's F-O-R-S-I-T-E foundation.org. Thank you so much, Cheryl Haynes, for being our guest today. It's been a marvelous conversation, incredibly enlightening and challenging, I think, for all of us to think again, you know, think again about each other and how we treat one another. Well, as Margaret Mead has famously said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And we wish you all the best. Uh, And uh, we'll be in touch, you and I. Yes? Great. Yes, indeed. Thank Thank you you. so much. Bye now. All right. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. 
Australian director Bruce Beresford has been a well-respected director since his 1980 breakthrough film, Breaker Morant. With such Oscar-recognized films as Driving Miss Daisy and Tender Mercies to his credit, it should come as no surprise that he is a master of manipulated emotion. Mao's Last Dancer tells the true story of Lee Kunsen, plucked as a child from farm life in rural China to become a state-trained ballet dancer. Lee was a part of Mao Zedong's plan to develop great athletes and artists who could demonstrate to the world the triumph of Chinese communism. He is ultimately chosen by the state to travel to America, representing the superiority of his homeland. Lee interns with the Houston Ballet Theater and becomes a star. When he decides to defect and remain in America, a potentially embarrassing major international incident looms. It's tempting to write off this film as jingoist propaganda and a manipulative tearjerker, but it is also a story well told, with great beauty in the dance and a basis in historical fact. Yes, Mao's Last Dancer is touching and magnificent entertainment. Tears do flow, and that's just fine with us. Indie Film Minute. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the reasonable voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Oranges. Trump and origins of Green New Deal. Our new colorful 116th house, with its female twist of fate, reflects the wisdom of voters refusing to throw America's pearls before swine willing to flagrantly discard human decency, including to those from any of the three Mexican countries. But Americans need to get serious, because Trump and his administration are less joke and more dangerous threat to our nation, our planet, and our children. The Cure? 2020 election, and a new New Deal that snatches love thy neighbor as thyself from the jaws of this inhumanity to humankind. Usually, live and let live has nurtured our ability to learn, adapt, and indeed transform ourselves and the lives of others. However, that which has always dwelt among us, albeit in the deep darkness of fear that breeds envy and hate, has been exposed by a new kind of dawn's early light that blinds many to our increasing polluted water, weather extremes, and a level of insensitivity to nature's food chain that is suicidal. Nonetheless, that so many are listening to a 29-year-old female freshman congresswoman from New York who isn't afraid of either scientific truth or saying socialism bespeaks as much about our American potential as it does hers and confirms our everlasting trust in the ingenuity and genius of every hue, politics, and true vision we hold as self-evident. Sadly, however, our ward, Earth, is in disarray and disrepair, stressed in part by the lies we tell ourselves. For the real con is that with which we trump our curiosity, creativity, and compassion. It isn't so much that the inmates have taken over the asylum, but that America's promise to be a home of the brave asylum for the huddled masses yearning to breathe free has been conned out of Lincoln's some of the people you can fool all of the time. American presidents who were great statesmen can be counted on one hand, good ones on two, and despite GOP canonization of Reagan, 
perfect ones zip. Nonetheless, on election day, presidents are what both voting and non-voting Americans hope for or fear most, which brings us back down to an earth going down at the hands of confidence artists dealing out so many stillborn pledges, good people are being turned into clones dismantling the very thing they seemingly crave most, America's prestige. As for impeaching our stonewalling-in-chief, care for what you wish for, because the apathy of the devil we know is better than the devil waiting in the wings, believing he is the foreplay before second-coming ecstasy. If neither stymied nor delayed, rippling climate effects will rob quality of life from deniers, corporatism's defenders, coal ash providers, and praying grandmothers alike. Because unlike Republican senators, Earth's changing climate will indiscriminately embrace everyone, regardless of bank balances or sexual and political proclivities. Perhaps it's time to passionately pursue a life of excellence reining in the rains that diminished life on earth, and, as advisors, mentor and nurture those who now must stop stubborn gray-haired men who continually Mitch McConnell the renewal of the American spirit that has now, against all GOP obstruction, produced an energized, forward-looking generation. In future elections, let's rekindle that famous Franklin Delano Roosevelt smile that shepherded America's greatest generation through depression and world war, and being brave in a land of the free, win Russian free elections. When we courageously grasp the torch passed to a new generation by a president who arguably saved humanity and earth, we become the next human chapter of profiles and courage compassionately driven to save the world for all of God's children. By simply accepting responsibility for not living our Gettysburg Address, fulfilling our Statue of Liberty promise, and failing to do the one thing the universe asks of us, to look after the earth as good shepherds, we can elect to replace our current morally bankrupt bullying White House cheat and his team of national security risks. Self-preservation and the power of faith in education will yield wisdom that will touch the world, even if the greed of Wall Street lobbyists and conservative fears impede our saving the earth. If we fail to listen to our collective reason-based conscience, now reawakened by the Green New Deal resolution inspired by the Commonwealth of Virginia and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, it will become increasingly difficult to find enough clean water to throw at buried-in-the-sand faces. Denying health insurance and pharmaceutical companies are pulling their trumped Congress puppet strings. Americans cannot heal. But when ignorance defeats Earth's health care, humankind cannot survive. In our age of consequences, that so many are focused on a renewed Roosevelt-like vision, perhaps we will discover the power in always listen to the children, finally realizing they are our American dream's best way home. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.
Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard around the world.